Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information, security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and this is our last weekly episode for the year. Uh, and yeah, I guess it, it, like all of the years lately, it went by pretty quick. Uh, so yes, we will be chatting with Adam Boileau in just a moment about all the security news of the last week. Uh, and then we've got a really great sponsor interview with Ben Johnson, the co-founder of Obsidian Security. Uh, ben is, of course, not a first-time founder. He also co-founded Carbon Black uh, some years ago. Carbon Black was one of the first mainstream EDRs. He was a real pioneer in that space. Uh, and I think his latest venture, Obsidian Security, is also a type of product we will see more of in the future, uh, much like EDR was when he was co-founding an EDR company. Uh, Obsidian focuses on helping to secure SaaS applications for enterprise uh, customers. You know, there's a config management component and a detection component, and uh, Ben gave me a really great interview about all of that. And honestly, I, you know, I think that one's worth listening to just to get a sense of, you know, what he's seen in terms of enterprises making mistakes with their with their SaaS stuff, like or, or for at least defining the problem set there. Uh, so that is coming up later. But first up, of course, it is time for a check of the week's security news with Adam Boileau. Uh, but actually, Adam, real quick, I have a mea culpa to get through. Uh, those problems we were having with Spotify and Google Podcasts and whatnot last week, they were not caused by services glitching out over our, <laughs> our duplicate certificate. So it wasn't some cert transparency weirdness. Uh, in the end, it turned out the fault lay not within the stars, Adam, but within myself. It was me what done it. Yes, there was some slight issue with the uh, intermediate certificate chains, which thanks to my years of experience writing SSL findings for pen test reports, uh, I was able to identify and we were able to remediate this issue uh, with the haste. Yeah, a couple of uh, listeners spotted it as well. Uh, one of them emailed and uh, I didn't see the email in time, unfortunately. But yes, it was my fault for not pasting the you know intermediate info into the CDN. <laughs> so not Spotify's <laughs> yes. fault, as it turns out. So mea culpa. But yeah, let's uh, let's run through the news, Adam, for the last time this year. And uh, we got some announcements out of Apple. Uh, they are expanding their end-to-end -end encryption offerings, I guess you'd call them. Uh, and they're applying like an end-to-end -end encryption scheme. Well, is it even end-to-end? -end? Is that what you call it? They're, they're, they're applying a user-controlled encryption scheme to things like iCloud backups. They're also adding um, uh, better sort of key warnings and stuff like that on iMessage. There, there's a few things they're doing right now. Um, they've announced these things are happening. I think they're in beta in the US and they're rolling out to US users early in the year and then globally a little bit later on uh, next year. And the FBI is already unhappy, as you'd predict, and um, <laughs> on and on and on. But why don't you uh, tell us about the changes that Apple has planned? here. Yes, so there's uh, the addition of user and user controlled encryption for a bunch of things that get stored in the iCloud, the most significant being backups, but also for some of the other things that you end up storing. Uh, I think they're also going to make that interface available to other you know applications and things to use. Um, but yeah, the idea there is to be able to make Apple not able to comply with, uh, you know, warrants for that data, I guess. I mean, that's the seems to be the primary use case for a backup specifically that's the thing that law enforcement get the most value out of um, apple notes that it would be effective if someone broke into icloud and tried to steal the data but in the same breath also says that no one's ever done that uh, which kind of leads you only with uh, with law enforcement so some gnashing of teeth from uh, from the fbi and other law enforcement agencies not entirely unexpected but we, um, but we but, have seen we have seen a lot of icloud accounts get owned over the years you know including all of those celebrities years and years ago and you know apple's author scheme just i don't trust it man i don't back up my photos to icloud for example but once this scheme rolls out i probably will 
Uh, yes, I mean, Apple's auth mechanisms have sometimes felt a little bit janky and a bit. Um, the user experience is bad. Uh, you know, logging in to manage your credentials through it, and then some of the recovery flows are a bit weird. So, yeah, making that a bit more robust does make a lot of sense. And and you're right, of course, where we have seen um, end user accounts broken into. Um, you know, that has been a problem with you know, leaking photos and things. They are also enhancing their support for hardware keys, so YubiKeys and other things um, to do U2F-style authentication on the phones, which is going to tie in with this uh, and, uh, you know, help improve that auth mechanism. Between that and passkeys, yeah, definitely big changes to Apple's uh, authentication. I mean, I, I, I got to admit, I was surprised they're adding, like, you know, hardware key support when their devices already have something similar in them, <laughs> which is tied to biometric authentication. Like, why add this? I don't quite get it, I've got to admit. Yeah, I mean, honestly, that is a good question. And you know, I guess I, what I want to believe is, is that it is Apple cooperating with the wider ecosystem. Like, if we see hardware tokens used broadly, then, you know, integrating that makes sense. But as you say, like, their existing security key infrastructure on the phones uh, and you know modern hardware you know modern laptops doesn't oh yeah i don't know if it makes maybe it's just someone's personal project inside apple that wants to do the right thing and, and has managed to make it through i'm, I'm not 100 percent sure either yeah and they've got this new thing called iMessage contact key verification where if you know uh, someone buys a new phone i'm guessing you're going to get a warning Yes, which, you know, we're all used to in Signal and probably all will just click accept and get on with life in Signal as well because people are constantly fiddling with their devices. I wonder uh, though, Apple being Apple, maybe they've figured out a way to actually get the key material from the old device onto the new device, but I don't know. Yeah, maybe, I don't know. Maybe the, if you migrate between, you know, using their existing migration functionality, maybe that comes across. I don't know. But, you know, anything that gives us better tools to spot when someone's, you know, in the middle of, of your iMessage, uh, probably useful. I think the day before Apple announced this, I was having a conversation with Tom Uran and I'm like, I think I was talking about it because we had Jim Baker on the show a while ago talking about exceptional access. And he was, of course, the, you know, the lead counsel at the FBI and then wound up being, uh, you know, lead counsel, I believe, at, at Twitter. And he was in the news and, you know, it just got me thinking about all of this. And I said to Tom, gee, you know, it really looks like the access debate died, you know, <laughs> like it's dead. And then, of course, Apple does this announcement. And um, now the FBI is complaining again, uh, saying that this is going to endanger lives and, you know, uh, impede investigations and blah, 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 blah. The same old stuff. Yeah, yeah, all the things that we've heard before. And, and, you know, there is an element of truth in all of those things. It will make life more difficult for them, um, you know, being able to pull a iCloud backup uh, out of Apple and then restore it and then do, you know, investigation and forensics on that. Pretty handy for them. But, uh, yeah, I guess we'll see, you know, I'm sure there will be some back and forth about this and we'll kind of have to see where it ends, much like, you know, the, the earlier rounds of this uh, this debate. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think the thing... <sighs> Tech giveth and tech taketh away, yes. uh, you know, so we might lose a lot of content insight there, but ultimately everybody these days is walking around carrying a device that tracks their, their precise location in about five different ways, right? <laughs> so, you know, if you had to pick between the two of those things, what would you pick? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And even if someone so. leaves their phone at home, you know, while they go do the crime and their phone is inactive for like five hours or something and it's never inactive and it just happens mm. to be inactive at the time of this crime. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, they still got plenty of options, that is for sure. Yeah, they do. But uh, look, I understand the FBI's concern because uh, the FBI, uh, you know, 
uh, its primary goal isn't just to uh, violate people's rights. It is actually to investigate serious <laughs> crimes. So, um, you know, I can understand the FBI looking out for its interests here, but um, I do wonder if this will be enough. Like if the impact is going to be really severe here to investigators, then you'd think it might bubble up as a political issue again. And, you know, it hasn't since Trump was in office, right? So I'd, I'm curious to see how that will play out in the US given the current political landscape. Yes. Yeah. I mean, when I read this, that was also one of the things I was wondering, you know, if, you know, I wonder how Apple plays that calculus, you know, of if we do too good a job, do we get politicked? Yeah. If we don't do good enough a job, then, you know, we're not doing the things that we're, you know, kind of positioning ourselves in the market to be good at security and privacy and so on. So it must be a strange I mean, I've I've been been expecting legislation around access for years and it's never materialised. So... You know, I mean, I think I may have been wrong on that and, I, and we won't see it. But of course, as soon as I make that prediction, there's going to be a bill, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, uh, we've also got a piece uh, in Wired by Lily Hay Newman here talking about Apple's plans uh, to build in some anti-abuse mechanisms into its platforms uh, as it rolls out these features. Obviously, uh Apple killed its plan, which I actually thought was a good one, which was to do on-device scanning for child sex abuse material. Uh, so they there was a public outcry because, I don't know, reasons. Uh, so now that that automated scanning is, is not going to happen, uh, they're, they're, they're looking at some other features that may deliver some benefits here. Yes, one of them seems to be uh, client-side detection of kind of nudity in general, which then parents can use through the Apple kind of, you know, family controls uh, to try and detect when children are generating new abuse material. Um, and or that makes sense. Reason- or being sent nudes. Or, and, or know, being, yeah, or being sent, right. I mean, um, and that does seem like a pretty sensible approach, especially given, you know, machine learning stuff and the support for it on the hardware, you know, is definitely getting better. Uh, And it does get around the problem of detection based on, you know, a database of, of, you know, hashes of known sex abuse material. So, you know, seems like a good idea, but we'll have to wait and see what the, you know, the specifics of the implementation and how effective and blah, 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 really to, you know, to, to, to understand whether that is an actual legitimately useful approach. Yeah, I mean, look, at least Apple's thinking about this. Yes. Uh, we're going to contrast that with what's going on at Twitter at the moment. Of course, uh, <laughs> Elon Musk made a big deal about, hey, we're going to bring E2EE hardcore security, woo, you know, to, to Twitter. Uh, you know, and Twitter was apparently having a look at the Signal uh, protocol to try to, you know, uh, investigate whether or not they could introduce this for Twitter DMs. And then uh, the company's new head of trust and safety has just said, yeah, no, we can't, we can't do this, right? Uh, and that's, I, I think that's something people don't necessarily realize is when Facebook moved to E2EE for its mobile application, you know, the amount of work that went into uh, user safety mechanisms like being able to flag content, um, you know, forward or flag uh, abusive messages for, you know, to be kicked into some automated and then presumably manual review. Um, you know, there was a lot of work that went into the safety component of this. It's not just a case where you flip a switch and encrypt everything and that's great because you just wind up with heaps of abuse that the platform can't intervene in. Yeah, exactly. It's a classic example of, you know, us nerds looking at a problem, hitting it with a technical hammer, but not thinking whole system. And, you know, it's very easy to, you know, we've all, you know, many of us, I'm sure, have read, you know, crypto books and understand the basic primitives and so on. But, 
you know, the experience of actually implementing it on, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of user scale in a real world with real law enforcement. And like, there's just a lot of complexity in the implementation that, you know, if you're approaching it from the outside, kind of like Elon is, and just kind of thinking you can first principles your way through it with, you know, computer science and, you know, some years of coding, it's it's just more complicated than that. Um, yeah, and, it is. You know, it's one of the great things whenever Stamos, you know, pitches in, you know, someone who's actually had the experience of, of dealing with this Man, kind I gotta, of... I got to say, Alex Stamos's Twitter account has been a lot of fun to watch uh, since, <laughs> since Elon Musk took yeah. over Twitter because, you know, he's kind of like just become the adult in the room through all yes. this, hasn't he? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he certainly has. And and he's got the experience and I think he's by and large right. So, yeah. yeah I mean, I've... I mean, I mean, the thing is too, uh, you know, there, there's your E2EE in the context of things like WhatsApp where they do have some anti-abuse stuff in there, um, but it's not as critical as the Facebook example. And this is something that we've spoken to Alex about before, which is when you start marrying uh, opaque E2EE-based messaging to social networking – that's when it gets dangerous. Yes, yeah, and, and the intersection between, you know, a public forum like, you know, Facebook started out as and Twitter is and then private messaging on the side and like and the, the way the identity interacts, it's just, it's a horrible, nasty can of worms and I, for one, I'm glad that it's not my can of worms to solve. <laughs> yeah. Now, Adam, let's talk about some work out of Mandiant, which has taken a look at some drivers that have popped up in the wild, uh, kernel drivers that have been signed by Microsoft, which is, you know, probably not really what you want. Uh, you don't really want malicious drivers uh, actually created by attackers getting, uh, you know, Microsoft's sort of, uh, cryptographic stamp of approval. Uh, and of course, these drivers are used to do things like kill EDR uh, and, and whatnot. So uh, what, what is Mandiant telling us in, in its report? Uh, so they've you know, they've seen drivers in the wild um, that are signed by Microsoft, uh, and they went and investigated, dug through VirusTotal, you know, tried to build some signatures to identify drivers that have been signed through this like Windows um, driver attestation mechanism. Um, and what I was surprised about, I think, is that the there is a process for essentially automated signing where you, as a developer, get an EV cert from a trusted CA, you code sign your, you know, your cab file or whatever, you submit it to Microsoft, and then they re-sign it with their authentic code, you know, Microsoft certificates and give it back to you. And there isn't uh, like a, a manual review step. There is a subsequent process by which you can submit uh, to the was it the windows lab kit testing which is the hardware lab kit testing which is the where microsoft actually does look at it i guess um but from the point of view of the thing that comes out the other end and if you're in a loud listing piece of software or you know you're doing some other detection it's still signed by the same set of microsoft certs um and that doesn't seem ideal, um, especially when you know you're seeing them used in the wild, we're seeing uh, manuals uh, assessed that you know there's a bunch of different stolen certificates that have been used. There's a bunch that have been ob obtained just by you know using perhaps less reputable certificate authorities to issue certificates, um, and that there is a bunch of this stuff uh, you know going on, which. You know, apropos of the conversation with um, Airlock in the previous week, right? It's so important if you're going to do whitelisting. It's so important if you're going to do allow listing, right? To be at least to be able to understand what the signatures mean. You know, if yeah, I mean, I, I has had, done any assertion yeah, or not. I, I had a chat with him uh, this morning actually about this, and you know, they say like ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, you're going to actually have you know these things are going to be signed uh, by the vendor. 
and also by Microsoft, right? So you can actually choose to like not trust Microsoft's signing of these things and then go on vendors, but then really like then you're making trust decisions based on like EV certs that you would think would be less robust than Microsoft's <laughs> process. But then, Mike, you know, like basically this is a hard problem, right? Like any way you try to approach this problem uh, to solve it, you're either looking at having to make a whole bunch of trust decisions based on a gazillion vendors and, and, and um, you know, drivers and whatnot, or you, you have to trust Microsoft and they've not, you know, and, and, and it looks like their trust model isn't that great. Yes, I mean this is the you know the whole TLS structure as a whole. You know, <laughs> um, you know we, we've got root trust certificates, and there's meant to be some process, but we still end up with all sorts of dodgy root CAs, and you know the authenticated like software signing bit is, and especially with EV, is meant to be like a subset of more trusted certificate authorities. But yeah, it's a you know, this is the problem that we experience. Well, I mean, last, we- last week we were talking about, uh, you know, LG and Samsung's Android platform certificates <laughs> yes, leaking, right? right? So, uh, yeah. and that's kind of what I mean, right? Like you would, it would, in an ideal world, you would be able to trust that Microsoft had looked at this stuff and thought, well, does it really need to be able to, you know, have the, 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 this type of code in it that will allow it to do things like, you know, kill processes and whatnot? Well, yeah, exactly right, and their like the level of detail they can afford to go to as you scale this process up, you know, is I guess not very big. Much like you know, we look at Google Play Store, right, where they've automated a bunch of that stuff, and it you know catches a bunch, but it also misses a bunch. Versus Apple's process, where there's a little bit more human involvement and it's a bit more aggressive, um, slightly more effective, but still, you know, at what cost, right? Um, well, I think I so. think another thing that protects Apple, right, is that they've got a really good sandbox model. So even if you could get a malicious app published to Apple Store, you've got to have a pretty sophisticated exploit chain to be able to do anything meaningful once you're on the device. And I think that just keeps a lot of the attackers out, to be honest, which is like, am I really going to burn an iOS Privesque chain mm, that's going to get yes. snapped by Apple telemetry, right? It's so much work. Or I can just go and own Androids because they're just, you know, they're treating it like, yeah, user account separation, right? Like on on kind of cut down Linux, which is a, a bit easier to Privesque in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, Although and less and less these days, Android's got better. I mean, yeah, less and less. And obviously, you know, uh, the Windows software ecosystem has had, you know, code signing for a long time. And we, because we're talking about kernel drivers where it is more difficult to restrict it, uh, it is, you know, the, the amount of work Microsoft would have to do is a bit more involved. And obviously they're going to rely on people spotting weird behavior, reporting to it, revoking the drivers. But then we're into the revocation process is also complicated as we, you know, talked over the last few years with their denial list of drivers that wasn't being particularly effectively updated. And yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. the whole whole bit is, is somewhat of a mess. Um, yeah, it one is. Thing I mean, I do, I do wonder, Adam, though, like why we need like all of this hardware to have kernel level access. Like in the case of a, a, of a graphics card, okay, you know, fair enough. Does a mouse really need kernel access? <laughs> well, I mean, I guess we've got some standardised drivers for things like mice, but I take your point, right, which is that um, we Like could... you should have a reason to be in the kernel. <laughs> That's <laughs> but what I mean, I'm getting at. You know, this gets back to the classic, should we have a monolithic kernel? Should we have a microkernel yeah. sort of, you know, architecture debate that... Uh, you know, people have been bike shedding in university computer science labs for, <laughs> for 40 years at this point without really arriving at a good answer. Um, yeah. Um, one thing was interesting uh, in Mandiant's investigations was that there were some similarities or some, you know, some things that made them think that 
maybe there was a like sign your driver as a service you know kind of underground yeah, offering that. on some forum yeah. uh, and that was quite interesting i thought that'd be an interesting niche to be in like just go and buy stolen certificates and bolt them into your you know code signing as a service crime offering yeah submit them to the uh submit them to the the crime people's uh, special CICD signing pipeline yeah yeah, yeah exactly right and that, that seems like a great niche so Good thinking, whoever's doing that. Yeah, yeah. Now, we've had Australia releasing the hounds, and now, uh, this is Catalan's joke, I can't claim credit for this one, it's time to release the Shiba Inus. <laughs> yes, uh, Japan is going to amend its laws to uh, you know, allow some of its uh, you know, government cyber people to do a bit more than they have previously. Their cyber like offensive options have been pretty limited by some aspects of Japanese law that kind of ties their ability to do that to activation of their defense forces and and so on. So um, this will give them a bit more flexibility, given Japan's been a pretty big target uh, for a lot of cyber over the years, and I suppose they're looking to... um you know, the Australian example, the US and the UK, uh, and want to be able to do the same sorts of things. They said uh, specifically they want to have the same kind of level of powers, uh, you know, equality with major Western powers in terms of their offensive cybers. So yes, a great many Shebas will be released, and I'm sure all of the NAFO fellas um, you know, high-five the other Shebs in the cyberspace. <laughs> Now let's talk about Rackspace's exchange business because this is just so funny, right? So Rackspace, uh, someone got in there, ransomware all of their exchange boxes. And then they put out this statement to their furious customers who've lost all of their emails saying, good news, everyone. (laughs) You know, we've restricted this to our, our hosted exchange environment. But as best I can tell, like that data's gone, right? So they're migrating those users over to like Office 365, you know, Microsoft Cloud accounts. They were making 30 million bucks a year out of their hosted exchange business, Adam. And they've just closed it. Uh, And there's class action (laughs) lawsuits flying and whatnot. And, you know, it just occurred to me that they didn't listen to us, which is stop hosting exchange. (laughs) And, like, the only thing, like, it's, I guess it's marginally less dumb when you're using someone else's hosted exchange or whatever. But I think the, the moral <laughs> of the story is just don't use exchange. They didn't listen to us, Adam. They didn't. No, and now look, didn't. now look, lawsuits, lost money. It's a disaster. Although I'm wondering how much money they're going to make on like clipping the tickets, selling, <laughs> selling the customers to Microsoft. So maybe they'll come out on top. I don't know. Their stock price does not suggest that they're coming out on top. No. Um, but yes, I mean, the only reason this service existed, I guess, is that it predated Microsoft having its own cloud mail service. And it's yeah, been quite but a come few. on, the time to clip those tickets and churn those users over to like M365 was, was a while years ago, ago yes. right? Like yes. literally years ago. So like it, it's just crazy. And they got rinsed by one of these basic like proxy shell, proxy not shell, you know, stupid bugs. So God yep. knows how they, they left those servers vulnerable to that. And then, yeah, they just got rinsed and they're copping it. <laughs> they, they certainly you know. are, and, and their you know their media relations, their statements and the emails and stuff have very strong like you know Iraqi information minister vibes. You know, yeah. I'm imagining the memes just reading it. You know, These attackers can, are suffering; their, their stomachs will boil in hell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> They're being repelled. But yeah, it sucks to be who it, it sucks to be their customers, which. Ah, yeah. I mean, having all of your email just gone, can you imagine how dead that would leave nearly any anyone's business? You know, yeah, just I mean, you'd get gone. there, I guess, but it wouldn't be, uh, you know, it wouldn't be pleasant, that's for sure. A lot of disruption Not be out a fun there. Time. No. But look, you know, that's a message to anyone out there. If you're thinking, hey... We don't run Exchange. We just get someone else to host it because they're the professionals. It's not really possible to run secure Exchange, right? Like that's, this is this could happen to you. So if you're relying on outsourced Exchange hosting, 
Stop it. Just stop it, okay? <laughs> Bad. 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 No biscuit. Bad. No biscuit for you. Ah, now we've got a great story here, actually, from uh, Brian Krabs, man. This is crazy. So uh, he's got a write-up here about a threat actor. Uh, this is based on research from uh, Alex Holden, founder of Hold Security. And, uh, yeah, so there's a couple of ransomware groups, uh, Klopp and Venus, who are going around... And they are trying to plant evidence in Outlook PST files to suggest that executives were involved in insider trading. So they plant the information and they say, look at this, we're going to blackmail you for insider trading. And, you know, the story points out that forensically it would be, you know, kind of easy to prove that this isn't, these aren't genuine emails and whatnot, but that doesn't matter because what they're trying to do is scare these executives into, into making payments. But I, I think the interesting thing in this report is really that they're resorting to these sort of new and creative mm. ways to try to shake people down because they're not getting paid. Yes, uh, and some of the data from you know some of the leaked chats and, and inside messages and stuff from ransomware crews do seem to suggest that they are you know struggling to get paid consistently and you know obviously innovating about how you go about forcing people to pay. I've been planting insider trading evidence in your PSD files. Like that's that's pretty good. Like uh, that would have been a fun evening at the you know at the pub when they came up with that one. Um, and then hey, may as well give it a try. See if we can get away with it. And uh, I mean, the bar to bringing in incident responders, you know, forensic investigators to disprove a thing like that, like that's a pretty high. And, and I can see this would probably be pretty effective. Um, so. You know, I, I'm, I'm interested to see what data we end up, you know, whether this does become a thing, you know, planting evidence uh, as a service, you know, could be another another niche, maybe. Uh, now, look, speaking of evidence being planted on people, you know, we've spoken about this before, where people acting in concert with the Indian police uh, have planted evidence on people to try to get them arrested and, you know, successfully gotten people arrested based on, on you know, pretty sloppily planted evidence on their computers. Uh, Wired's got a report here. It looks like someone, they've identified someone else uh, who had evidence planted on them who actually died in prison. Right, so evidence was planted on them, presumably by the same people, and uh, you know they are no longer with us. So this is a this is scandalous. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And um, this one has the interesting twist where uh, the person whose computer it was, when they were going to get arrested and their equipment rolled up, uh, the attackers who'd been in this computer for about five years. The day before the computer was seized, they rolled up and started trying to delete evidence of their intrusions, making sure that the planted evidence was still there. Uh, and you know that time coincidence does suggest not a coincidence, yeah, right? Yeah. That, that suggests that the attackers and law enforcement were you know working hand in glove, if not the same people anyway. Which we had seen other evidence for that in some of the other cases from the same. Um, you know, police uh, in the same area of India. So it's just a really horrible story to read. Um, yeah, it is. It is. So Andy, Andy Greenberg wrote that one up for Wired and there is a link in this week's show notes. Staying with Wired and Matt Burgess uh, has a fun write-up here about uh, all of the scamming happening on these crime forums. Uh, you know, we're talking like mostly small amounts that people are scamming each other out of, like a hundred bucks, but it adds up. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's always nice to see people who are ripping people off themselves get ripped off. Um, the researchers, I think from Sophos, uh, who were looking into, you know, kind of how fraud works on these forums, uh, also made the good point that when a forum has a dispute resolution process where you can present a bunch of evidence to the admins or whoever that you've been ripped off or that someone didn't complete their part of the bargain, that the evidence for that tends to have more information, you know, in terms of like screenshots or whatever else uh, that are actually, you know, useful for identifying people, identifying tooling, identifying victims. Uh, and that's a pretty interesting line of research. 
you know, beyond just the sort of the schadenfreude of, of people being ripped off. So how would one go about accessing that information? Because I would have thought those conversations would happen in private. Well, we've seen leaks from forum data, um, yeah, you know, where yeah, the forums yeah. themselves have been compromised or whether you've got sufficient access or, or insides. But um, I had some examples of like, you know, screenshots with, you know, email addresses and Jabber identifiers and things that, uh, you know. AKA yeah. selectors. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Krebses, but, you know, they're close enough. Same yeah, thing. <laughs> close enough, close enough. And uh, look, staying on that theme, Catalan had a great write-up for us. Uh, about a member of a gang called, uh, the, the gang's called You Are Sniff or Your Sniff. And, uh, you know, someone, it was a, it's a malware operation and one of its members uh, got pretty grumpy, started leaking against low-level members, threatening the boss. And it uh, looks like the boss actually paid up to uh, stop these leaks and the disgruntled member walked away saying words to the effect that they'd made more money in that week than they'd made in years. So I don't know, <laughs> good for you, but it's still a... Cr- I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to feel about this one. Did you catch yeah, this? Like, yes, yeah. And the, the person who had, had leaked the data or was leaking the data and subsequently got paid also said uh, to the boss, pay workers right and they won't have a reason to leak so, you, you know, go. yay, workers' rights. And, workers and, of the world unite. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fight the power, man. Yeah. By oh, man. showing your boss. I guess you, can, you can't really unionize if you work in malware. So, yeah. <laughs> now we've got some late breaking news, Adam. And uh, apparently, some Chinese APT crew is going berserk with a Citrix bug at the moment. Uh, Reuters has a report up. I've seen Rob Joyce, uh, you know, from the NSA Cybersecurity Directorate all over Twitter uh, talking about this one. So it seems like someone's going wild. Someone's yes. going wild. APT5 is going wild. Yeah, APT5 has you know plenty of experience in this avenue. They've hit Citrix in the past. They're also the same people that were going crazy with you know the Pulse VPNs and um, the last Fortinet bug, I think, as well. Uh, so plenty of experience in breaching perimeters. Uh, and you know if you're an admin of a, of a Citrix network edge these days, you're probably pretty used to emergency patching. But yeah, it's in the wild. It's been owned. You need to roll. Uh, if you have Citrix in your environment, because you don't want to be doing incident response over Christmas, uh, although it may be too late. It may be too late indeed. But a- any idea what these this crew typically does? Are they just like a normal espionage crew? Or are they trying to own everything and then sift it later? Like, what do we know anything more here? I mean, this is one of the really long-running Chinese crews going back to the like mid two thousands. Uh, so they've had their fingers in, in all you know everybody's pies at this point, I think. Um, but yeah, very experienced, pretty smooth. It's one of those ones that you know I think aggravates threat intel people when we you know lump them all together like it's a winty sort of situation. But yeah, APT five is a very experienced set of operators that you know have done crime, they've done espionage, uh, and yeah, they are they are effective and a very real threat. Yeah. Yeah, patch your Citrixes, patch your Pulse Secures, patch your Fortinets. There's some bad Ooh, moves, some yeah, bad Fortinets, Fortinets time again. <laughs> uh, but before we talk about that, uh, police in Greece have raided the offices of uh, the vendor Intellexa, which makes the Predator uh, spyware. This was originally an Israeli company that I believe after it felt a little bit of heat in Israel, set up shop in Athens. Then there was a scandal whereby it was re- revealed that um, this spyware was popping up on the phones of like journalists and opposition politicians and whatnot. So this is a breaking story right now that there have been some raids there and, um, you know, that's that's probably going to be one we'll talk about early next year. Yes, yeah, raids on both the homes and offices of a bunch of the companies, you know, of, of Intellect and some related companies. So, yeah, it's uh, I'm sure the story will be interesting once we see the details. 
The details of the National Defense Authorization Act are getting hammered out in uh, the United States. Looks like there's going to be an awful lot of money going to the uh, to the old cybers there, Adam. Uh, 44 million extra to Cyber Command to augment its hunt forward uh, mission, which I guess means that they had some success with prior uh, uh, missions. Uh, you know, I'm thinking specifically about Ukraine. I, I, I think from what I can tell, that that went well, right? So they're expanding that. Um, but more interestingly, I think they're, they're revamping FedRAMP, which, oh my God, if you have ever spoken to a vendor who's had to deal with FedRAMP certification, <laughs> you would know that it's long overdue. Uh, just absolutely traumatizing and infuriating trying to get FedRAMP certified. So they're they're trying to fix that up and make it more of a presume allow than presume deny process, which I think makes sense, right? Because currently you've got a process that basically rewards people who can tick the right boxes and jump through the right hoops and do the right bureaucratic stuff, right? Yes, that certainly marries my experience of vendors who've been through that FedRAMP process. They are all traumatised, uh, which, you know... I don't often feel sympathy for vendors, but that's definitely one of them. Um, there's uh, also some um, requirements in, uh, on Cyber Command to submit uh, reports about election systems, kind of bolster the work that they've been doing there. And uh, on spyware, is, but we've talked about that before, about yes. how they were going to do that. One one other interesting thing in the bill is that they've left out the SBOM requirement, which, um, you know, we picked up uh, a, a disturbance in the force around that stuff because... You know, essentially, industry has come forward and said, look, if you make this a requirement, like no one's going to be able to actually achieve this. So for now, it's out of the uh, NDAA. Yeah, but it's a great conversation and there is a bunch of work. I mean, I know like Google's done a lot of work over the years of um, trying to build systems that allow them to do, you know, the equivalent of S-bombing, but, you know, in a practical, usable way. And I think, you know, industry is... I think got the message that this is a thing that's either going to happen to them in a bad way or they better come up with a working, workable solution. Um, and you know, that, that's that's my up. read as well, which is they're like, okay, we understand that this is something we need to work towards, but there is no way we're going to get this ready next year. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I was there was some. Uh, I read some post on Mastodon this morning uh, from one of the Google engineers that works on on their instance of this, and yeah, it sounds like you know coming up with a workable solution. You know, we're going to see it eventually. Uh, and probably from somewhere like Google that's had so much experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Australia and Vanuatu have signed a defence and cybersecurity pact, uh, according to this piece by Alexander Martin, over at the record. And this is an example, Adam, you know, Vanuatu has has been suffering from this um, awful ransomware attack, which has really crippled a lot of the country's government uh, uh, systems. Uh, apparently, Australia uh, sent people to help uh, uh, the, the government uh, recover from this ransomware uh, attack. And, you know, this is an example of what I've been talking about lately in terms of um, a lot of this activity being a great opportunity to build relationships regionally, right? And, and it looks like we've got ink on paper in this case. Yeah, which is, is great. And there was, you know, concern in the region when uh, China and the Solomon Islands, uh, you know, inked some agreements uh, that, uh, you know, raised a lot of eyebrows. Uh, and so, you know, seeing, a, you know, an example of this now proceeding in our favour, you know, ours being the, you know, Australia, New Zealand, West, that's a good thing, sets some good examples, uh, and hopefully we'll see similar things happening, you know, to shore up our position in the Pacific. Oh, now we're going to talk about some work out of ESET. Uh, we've got a, got a report here. Very fascinating stuff, right? Apparently, an Iranian APT crew has targeted a bunch of Israeli companies, including a company that makes software for like the diamond industry, and they like supply chain attacked it to disrupt all of that company's customers. And um, yeah, it's a big old mess. But uh, yeah, just uh, just wild stuff. Wild stuff out wild there on the stuff. internets, Adam. 
Yeah, I do wonder how the Iranians are going to get like their diamonds out of it, but um, I'm sure they've got a, they've got a good plan eventually. Um, but yeah, it's uh, those like diamond companies in South Africa, jewelers in Hong Kong uh, through the supply chain attack. So I don't know. I, 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 I guess they know what they're doing. I'm not quite sure what they're, what well, they're they doing. Had, Maybe they're they had more diamond sense. futures or something. They had more sense than the Russians who added a SMB exploit to their similar thing, right? Uh, for not Petya. <laughs> yeah, so a little more control. Thanks, Iran. <laughs> Now we got some incidents to sort of whiz through quickly. We got some reporting out of Ukraine that says that uh, Ukrainian railway and state agencies have been targeted by something called the Dolphin Cape Malware. That's by Darina Antoniuk uh, over at uh, uh, the record. So, you know, this is the sort of stuff that we would expect to be happening uh, in ransomware news. Uh, we got a warning from the US Department of uh, Health that the Royal Ransomware, uh, you know, they should expect, hospitals should expect more attacks uh, from that ransomware crew. That's that's uh, per a Jonathan Grieg report at the record. Uh, Alexander Martin also at the record reports that a crisis situation has been declared uh, in two Swedish municipalities, uh, presumably ransomware there. Uh, the New York Metropolitan Opera, Adam, uh, their ticketing has even been uh, 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 impacted by a cyber attack. I mean, leave the opera alone, internet <laughs> criminals. Just uncultured, uncultured. Very uncultured. And uh, we got lockbit attacks against uh, the California Department of Finance, according to CyberScoop. Uh, and what else have we got here? Play Ransomware Group uh, attacked Antwerp. And uh, yeah, there's like multiple incidents there. Is that right? Yes, there's another town in the Netherlands uh, where also all of the city services involved computers are down. So, yep, uh, it continues as it has been all year. I haven't seen much news out of Revil. Uh, you know, I, I've promised to sort of update listeners on that. But yeah, they seem to have been pretty quiet, uh, you know, aside from that activity we spoke about a couple of weeks ago. But yeah, certainly not super active. The old Blog XX uh, Revil crew who are probably, um, I don't know, maybe they're taking a break or maybe they're having ASD problems. Um, yeah. Also a major breach at a payroll company called Sequoia. Uh, so that was uh, that was not so great. And we got some, um, some more work out of TAG that reveals that the North Korean actor APT37 was actually rolling with um, with O'Day. Now, before you get too excited, it was Internet Explorer O'Day. <laughs> yeah, in the like, <laughs> JavaScript engine in, in IE, uh, which they can still reach through rendering HTML inside like Microsoft Word. Uh, so pretty classic technique. I mean, that's been used to deliver IE bugs for, for many a year now. But yeah, straight up zero day. And, you know, that's, it must be kind of fun being the IE like IE Vuln Hunter in North Korea, like it's a pretty relaxing job, I'm sure. Like it's an easier target than uh, more modern browsers and yet still delivers the goods. James Reddick uh, over at The Record has also reported on a bunch of arrests of uh, some individuals involved in BEC. We've seen some arrests by the Australian Federal Police here in Australia too uh, of people involved in like pig butchering and whatnot. So there's, you know, the usual sort of law enforcement activity. But look, that wrap, wraps up our incident uh, report in uh, this week's news. Now I want to talk about... <laughs> A very funny WAF bypass. Like, as much as we like to talk about, you know, international treaties and defence authorisation acts, Adam, you and I, at the end of the day, love nothing more than a news item like this from Portswigger. Yes, uh, good old-fashioned comedy hacks. Uh, <laughs> this is a technique for bypassing uh, detection of SQL injection in web application firewalls uh, through using the built-in features of, of you know, nearly all modern databases uh, to support the JSON encoding format. So 
rather than have the WAF trigger on you know, what looks like the output of SQL statements uh, or you know, input to SQL things, you can just send them encoded as JSON and then have the database encode and decode using its built-in mechanisms, which is such a simple and great idea and totally yeah. works. Yeah, it bypasses <laughs> WAFs from Palo Alto Networks, <laughs> AWS, Cloudflare, F5, and Imperva. And I'm yeah. guessing there's a lot of people out there who are real, like you would have to think someone was using this. Yes. Oh, yeah. Abs- absolutely. Because I mean, so many places, you know, fixing SQL injection at the source in your application can be very difficult, especially if the application's old. You don't have the source, uh, and many people are very tempted to just bolt WAFs on it. And SQL injection is one of the things that WAFs can spot. Yeah. Uh, and so, any way to get around that, um, you know, given the relatively small processing budget, you know, time-wise that a request has to go through a WAF. You know, anything that gets it out of the like the, the main path of the WAF is gonna get you past it. So good yeah. good thinking, whoever came up with this. Good thinking. <laughs> and finally, Adam, we get to end with, you know, it's it's a double barrel of uh, comedy research this week. Uh, more Fortinet bugs. Yes, uh, some researchers have dug up, uh, I think it's a straight up like heap overflow memory corruption in the SSL VPN uh, component of Fortinet's like FortiGate VPN concentrator, which Oh, Fortinet, and of course, like minimal exploit mitigation tech because why would vendors include exploit mitigation tech for most common classes of bug like memory corruption? And, you know, these are, of course, on the edge of people's network and it's being exploited in the wild. So, yay, that's a, a fun a fun end to the year. Everyone who works in a sock, everyone who works in, in having to patch production remote access gear, Citrix bugs, Fortinet bugs, you know, Log4j lives forever. So... <sighs> the internet may still burn down while we're away, but uh, if it does, it's probably going to be Fortinet's bucks. <laughs> well, mate, that's actually <sighs> it for this week's news. That's actually it for another year of Risky Business. What, I think the 16th year, uh, continuous year of this uh, this podcast, which is a crazy thing to say out loud. Um, you know, thanks for all of your contributions uh, over the year, Adam. It's uh, It's been a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, looking forward to doing it all again in 2023. Yeah, it's it's really interesting seeing how the trajectory of the show and the industry have changed over the years, and the, you know the fact that we have this mix of you know bugs and geopolitics and comedy all at once. Well, uh, lots and lots of new stuff, and then lots and lots of like not so new stuff. Right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So yeah, that's uh, that's good for little nostalgia for us old folks. Some new exciting stuff for all the children who have to fix all the problems that we made. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to being back next year, and we can uh, we will see where this crazy train leads us. That was Adam Boileau there with a check of the week's news for the last time in 2022. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Ben Johnson, co-founder of Obsidian Security. And this isn't Ben's first company. Back in the day, he was a pioneer in what became the EDR space uh, as a co-founder of Carbon Black. And I say this because he has a track record of being kind of ahead of the market, right? So his new thing, Obsidian Security, is a SaaS security play. And it's one that makes a lot of sense. Basically, SaaS, everything from Salesforce to O365, Google Workspace, Dropbox, whatever, right? you know, Slack, on and on and on. Uh, you know, all of this stuff is a configuration nightmare and a visibility black hole, right? And that is what Ben is trying to tackle. And with that, I'm just going to drop you right into the interview. Here's Ben Johnson. <laughs> well, you know, SaaS, I think, entered the enterprise environment because they basically said, hey, we're going to handle everything. You guys just, 
you know, use it, use the tool for email or for document sharing or, you know, video calls or whatever. And, uh, and that's great on the more on the productivity and the business side, but uh, security is, you know, ultimately still the enterprise's responsibility. And so I think now most security teams are trying to figure out what's the best way to tackle SaaS. Yeah. And what are the problems people are actually bumping into, right? Because I think, you know, one of the issues here is that you could have some problems and you're not going to have any insight about those problems. You're not even going to know those problems exist, right? So, so what are the problems that orgs, you know, the security problems that orgs are facing through their use of SaaS? Yeah. I mean, I think first and foremost, it's, well, what are the problems <laughs> kind of to your question? You know, what are the, the specific technical risks or the real world use cases or, or things like that? And then you start thinking about, we all essentially grew up ripping apart malware or looking at network packets or all that stuff, but no one really grew up looking at Salesforce logs or looking at Office 365 posture settings or things like that. Right. So there's a, a big gap in the, uh, essentially the, the 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 talent that has experience right and that's not an indictment on anyone it's just it's new it's it's stuff that people haven't done before and then if you get more specific into into challenges it's hey i know i need to harden this SaaS app or all of these SaaS apps what do i do hey i know there's attackers out there that are compromising email boxes or or whatever how do I detect that? How do I respond to it? You know, et cetera. So depending on if you're looking, you know, kind of more upstream and preventative or downstream and, uh, you know, detective, there's just a lot of things that teams are trying to figure out how do they even accomplish that? Yeah. I mean, it, it sort of reminds me a little bit about how there's a lot of orgs out there that don't really have good visibility into their cloud apps as well. Like it's a similar problem set because I think it's got better for some these days because you you know you go to some huge company and they will probably have some AWS experts there who can decipher things like cloud trail logs right but i think it's a similar problem and and you were kind of getting at that as well which is you know you're not pulling apart network packets and uh uh you know malware and things like that this is all sort of logging information from SaaS apps that all tend to do it differently as well i mean that's another one of the issues here isn't it it's not like Salesforce and Gmail um, or, you know, Google Workspace event information is normalized and, and can be treated the same. Oh, I wish there were standards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely right, though. The explosion of different apps and the entropy between them and, you know, essentially the diversity in every environment. And even if you consolidate all on pretty much Microsoft 365, I mean, first of all, you're still going to have some other apps just because. But uh, even within some of these bigger, you know, platforms, basically, you'll see different capabilities and different logs and that kind of thing. All right. So you've mentioned um, O365, right? Why is it that you, you know, you're selling a third party bit of tooling for, for monitoring and, uh, and, and securing O365, right? Because Microsoft like to say, you know, buy E5 and we've got all of the tools that you'll ever need. Like what, what is it that you're actually able to offer that they're not? Yeah, I think uh, I think security teams need a tool that's really designed for them and something like Microsoft 365, it's ultimately designed for each individual employee to perform their business with some security stuff, you know, added on. And, you know, I think what we find is security teams aren't really sure even how to navigate some of these complex um, you know, basically pages of settings and what should you toggle on or off? How should you harden those kinds of things? So they really need that additional layer of analytics, that additional detections that maybe aren't 
inherent in some of these SaaS apps. And then- Man, when I think back, when I think back and look at the fortunes that have been made by doing exactly that, which is taking the plumbing that Microsoft's put into a product and actually making it usable, it's a lot of fortunes. It's a lot of money, right? Because they always do this. They get the plumbing right and they get the interface part just completely wrong. Yeah, I mean, there's, it's all about productivity of the security team, right? I mean, you, you know, you probably have lots of conversations where you're trying to figure out how do we get more butts in seats or more leverage, more automation, whatever it is, but ultimately there's too much work to do and security teams need to just get it done, whether it's hardening or detection or response, and they don't have time to uh, decipher and navigate all these different platforms and they need something that makes it easy. So, I mean, you're talking about a use case here, which is like how to harden your O365 environment using the tooling that you make, right? But there's two sides, isn't there? Because you've got the visibility side and you've got the hardening side. Like generally speaking, when you, I mean, you would have a really good insight into what your customers are buying and why. Like are people buying for the hardening side or the detection side? It's really both. I mean, definitely people, uh, you know, optimize for one or the other, and it's kind of the same on endpoints or anything else. Like you have to take either more of a, you know, buzzword, sorry, but like an XDR approach or like a preventative approach. You have to kind of pick where you're placing your bets more and you're spending more time. So um, we see that. We see, you know, I think a lot of teams, uh, you know, have a threat team and they need something that's doing that continuous security monitoring. But we also do see teams that are just trying to get more preventative and hardening, but everyone needs both, right? They, you need to lock it down as much as possible, but you ultimately still have to monitor for those attacks. So in the case of something like Google Workspace or O365, like what are the, what are the top three hardening steps that people are not doing that they should be? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> see, I asked you to pick three, three right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, no, you know, I think first and foremost, everyone has pretty much lost a good uh, you know, sort of control over privileged access, right? Yeah. So, you know, you connect to an environment and the best practice is maybe two to four global admins and we'll see 57, right? Yeah. So it's not like they have five or six. It's, <laughs> it's a complete, you know, order of magnitude off. Uh, and then, you know, it's, it's really hard to keep track of all these consultants who have, you know, sort of more temporal access. They're going to come in, they're going to leave. Even just employees who have been there for a while and then they leave and their accounts are so, still So on. privilege, privilege audit, uh, life cycle. Um, what's, what's the number three for us? Number three is really the, uh, you know, kind of um, default access that, that people are granted. So a lot yeah. of times it's, oh, by default, Anonymous users can join teams and have full access to your SharePoint or things like that or, you know, uh, Google Drive and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, I'll, I'm going to cheat and throw in more. I mean, the, the whole third party application uh, has, has really exploded. You know, we connect and you see 20,000 apps connected to Google Workspace. It's like, well, and, no and, one, and this is yeah. something where Microsoft has made uh, uh, tools to help you deal with that. But they are kind of a pain in the ass to use, right? Which is where there's room for third parties. Oh yeah, it's 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 incredibly difficult to use some of these out of the box tools, and so you. I mean, until something. until a year or two ago, like you could only do that sort of thing via PowerShell too, right? Yeah, I mean, even to this day, some of the queries you still have to do PowerShell. Yeah, wow, that's real user friendly there. Uh, that's a, that's amazing. Um, so look, I that that's interesting, right? Talking about the hardening stuff, and I can imagine that that's going to be very. Um, you know, just useful in terms of tightening up defaults, right? Like that's defaults and looking at privilege and whatever. The thing that I found really interesting though, like thinking about this um, is the, on the detection side, right? 
because it, it dawned on me, and we were talking about this before we started recording, it dawned on me in conversations I was having with people like Brett Winifred over at Okta, which is, you know, you can collect some really cool telemetry from stuff like your SSO platform, like Okta. But, you know, once you've processed an authentication event and granted that user access to a thing, you can't see anything else, right? Like you don't know what happens next. And I understand that's kind of a, um, that's kind of something that you've been working on is trying to marry that, you know, those authentication events to actual user actions. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the conversations I remember very clearly in even thinking about starting Obsidian was talking to, to a CISO and he said, hey, I have Okta, I have Duo. Once they log in, I have no idea what happens. Yeah, and that's are, it. I mean, I, I had that epiphany as well, but I, like wait, years too late, but I was just like, oh my God, you know, this is, this is bad. Yeah, those, I mean, those, and those, you know, these are great products and such, but you have, to, you have to really monitor the entire set of behavior that users are doing. And then what we try to do or what we do do is really look across different SaaS apps. So you can say, oh, well, they're logging in from this location to Slack, but then this location over here to Zoom and then this location to G Suite, you can correlate all that, provide a better picture of what's going on. I mean, you can get that sort of stuff out of Okta, right? But if you, you know, the stuff that you can't get is say looking at a user who authenticates to all of those services at once and then starts dumping absolutely everything they have access to like at once. So you might be able to get the impossible login stuff through Okta. They're pretty good at that, but you won't get, oh, okay, this person is either compromised and the attacker is trying to exfil absolutely everything or this user is actually trying to exfil all this stuff uh, that they have access to. And that's probably you know a bit of an insider threat situation as well, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there's the whole situation of people have been granted deliberately access to these tools to do their job. And now they're deciding to, you know, take everything out of GitHub or whatever before they, you know, maybe go on to their next job or things like that. But we've also seen where the attackers use a, a local VPN close to your HQ to get in to compromise the account to get through Okta, etc. But once they're in, and they've gone through that conditional access policy in Microsoft or what have you, they now have their token. They just yeah. So they take the cookie and then bang, they're using it from Russia, right? And Okta yeah. won't see that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's so Got obvious it. when you correlate all this information and put it up together. No, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was like, well, why would you need you guys for that, right? But that's why because again, you know, platforms like Okta just do that point in time authentication, and yeah, as you say, they could just then take that those you know session cookies or whatever and and just use them from wherever and that's not an issue for your for your SSO platform. Yeah, and and you know one of my other uh, favorite things to to look for and this is sort of bridging between hardening and and you know continuous monitoring is you just go show the user all the places people are logging into these tools like Google or whatever where it's not going through Okta. So they mm. think, "Oh yeah, everyone has to log in through your SSO platform or whatever," but then you're yeah, like, "Yeah, but well, they don't." Here's all these people that are just <laughs> logging in directly. So. Yeah, exactly. They don't. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting one because uh, can you think of cases where you've gone into a big company where they thought that they were steering everyone through SSO and it turned out that like they had big problems with people just stepping around it? Oh yeah, all the time. It's just, yeah. you, you create some exception and then, you know, over time it just, you know, everything just gets more chaotic and eventually... More people have admin, more people are logging in outside of SSO, maybe even MFA is turned off, you know, there's just, just a lot of challenges in keeping up with all that. Well, I'd imagine you would, um, that's one of the first things you would be trying to spot too with the audit phase, right, is to check for MFA gaps, because that's, oh. that's a, they're always there, you know? <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah. And the whole, yeah. the whole like MFA fatigue now where you, you lo you roll in and you see someone keeps timing out on MFA, keeps timing out and then eventually they accept it and it's from a strange IP and, you know, and then you can just imagine what happens after that. But, I mean, that I imagine is a pretty high quality detection for you, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 That's it. Yeah. All right. Well, Ben Johnson, uh, pleasure to meet you. And uh, yeah, great to chat to you about all of this. Uh, very interesting field. And I imagine it's quite um, enjoyable doing something uh, a bit new because, you know, you have your background as a, as a bit of an EDR pioneer with, um, uh, with Carbon Black. And this is not that. Um, <laughs> very, very, very different. But uh, I wish you all the best with it. And uh, yeah, great to chat to you. Cheers. Thank you so much. That was Ben Johnson there from Obsidian Security. Smart guy. Uh, and that is it for this week's show. And indeed, that is it for the weekly show this year. I will be back tomorrow in the Seriously Risky Business podcast in the Risky Business News RSS feed, which if you haven't subscribed to, you should go do that. Uh, and then, yeah, we're all going to take a break for a few weeks. I think Catalan might publish a weekly newsletter through that period just because he can't stop. Uh, but we'll all be back in the office properly on January 9. So have a great holiday, everyone. Bye-bye.